Welcome to Keeping Athena Company. My name is Athena Kalbenu. I'm a stand-up comedian, writer, podcaster, and a parent. And as you will know, if you listen to this podcast, I think parenting is great. However, um, my 14-month-old now, or 13, how old are you? That's right, you don't even know. You don't know anything. That's the point. She doesn't know anything. I can't talk about anything with her. So what I do is I invite um, a friend around to come around and keep my company. And today, I've invited somebody into my home who I think I've spoken to more online than in actual real life, which is the way of the world these days, I think. Um, but there you go. Welcome to um, my living room now, not my mum's kitchen. I have, a li- I have a living room, guys. Onwards and upwards. Um, James Harris. Hello. Hello, Athena. Hello, Hello. everyone. Are you well? I am. I am. I'm not well, which we've established. I'm a bit. Uh, I'm a bit run down with the um, with the general November bad weather illness. But I am. I am spiritually very well. I think everyone's sick at the moment, and I think we're all like walking around going, "Oh, we've got. I've got the flu." But really, it's just the election. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're just sick of the, We're sick of everything, and it's manifesting itself in like flu-like symptoms. But really, we're just sick of everything. Yeah, the, the nation has some kind of like long-term flu. Yeah. Which is just going to rumble on It's on. just a mist of... It's a mist of political germs that, are, that we're all inhaling at the moment and sneezing out onto everyone. I'm sick of it. I'm really annoyed because yesterday there was an article in The Standard. The 21st, 21st of November, there was an article in The Standard. There was an interview with Jeremy Corbyn in which in this interview, he said lots of things and he said something along the lines of there is no anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, right? Then the, the article got changed and that line was deleted uh, because he didn't say it, uh, which is very frustrating because people like me who like to call out the Labour Party and in particular Jeremy Corbyn were like, well, this guy's an idiot. Typical Jeremy Corbyn and he didn't say it. And this is the kind of thing that's very frustrating because we all want to be progressive, but we're not being allowed to be progressive because we're not even getting information in an honest way from things that we would think to be honest this is a proper journalist in a proper in a proper publication yeah although it's weird because she's also an incredibly experienced journalist yeah what's her name I forgot uh, Lynn Barber Lynn, Lynn Barber and she's like the, yeah. the interview she's like the the person so it, it, it's incredible that someone with that experience um, would, would I mean that's obviously the statement that particular statement is the most it's like the headline quote of the entire interview. Right. So you'd think with something as inflammatory as that, that it would be checked. And she said online yesterday, um, well, I haven't checked yet. So presumably she's got a record of it. I so th- I, don't know, I don't know what is going on with that. I think it's editorial. I think someone, mm. I think it's just sub not even so, I don't know what you call it, but I think it's editorial. I think when she sent it into someone, someone said, that sounds like he said this and stuck it in, quite mm. frankly. Um, and we'll never know the story as to how and why it got changed. Um, but I think that what's happening now is something doesn't need to be true anymore. It just needs to be out there. Um, and then the way our brains work, it's a bit like the way advertising works. If you, they say in advertising, if you see something seven or eight times, you'll end up complying. Um, so advertising isn't about seeing a picture and doing something. It's about seeing the same thing in different ways constantly and constantly. And that was one of the times that that publication wanted us to see that sentence. And, oh, it's wrong. My mistake, or it doesn't matter. Well, they want they, their, their intention was for us to believe he said it. It doesn't matter that they've retracted it. We've seen it now. And then in two days' time, something else will happen. So it's hard because something I believe passionately, Jewish people are victims of white supremacy in the same way that other people are. 
And so I'm always telling people about this. Like, this is not this is not just like a random kind of racism that's happening out there in in a field. It's the same racism that um, has colonized people and made people um, enslave people. And that's why I always talk about Black Handsman, the movie. Have you seen the movie Black Handsman? So a big that movie isn't actually about Denzel Washington's son character infiltrating the clan. It's actually about um, a character who is Jewish who infiltrates the clan. And he spends the whole time trying to like hide his Jewishness because we talk about the Klan as being anti-black, but it's actually also anti-Jewish, uh, very violently so. Uh, and it's really interesting that um, we don't talk about that as much. And my, my theory is people just like to talk about anti-blackness to always position people, black people in this position way, a particular way. But lots of people are victims of, of white supremacy. Uh, particularly Jewish people. So anyway, what I'm getting at is that you're, we're always trying to have this progressive conversation where we position people in perhaps contextually more correct ways than they usually are. And then you've got these journalists who just make it even harder to be honest. Uh, and it's frustrating. Anyway, let's talk about something else. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't disagree with any of that. I mean, it's just, it doesn't help. I, I spend quite a large part of my time online yeah. arguing with people about anti-Semitism and writing about anti-Semitism. Are you a practicing Jewish person? I'm not practicing. I'm not, I'm not really a Jewish person by anything other than people in my family yeah. being Jewish. So I was brought Do your family up, practice? No, no. Um, I mean, my, my grandfather went off Judaism when everybody in his family got killed. Because he sort of said, he said, you know, if we're the chosen people, you know, I don't want to see what the rest of people have to do with, you know, because it's not really working out. So it's that side, my mum's dad, that side of my family. But it does mean that I've got quite a lot of Jewish family, quite a lot of Jewish friends, know a lot of people in the Jewish community. Yeah. And and I'm quite interested in, in anti-Semitism and how it works. And what I saw yesterday, which was really pertinent to what you're just saying, was, you know, Rachel Riley put up that photo of her in a t-shirt wearing a t-shirt which had Corbyn's image when Corbyn was protesting against apartheid yeah which was you know a huge thing to open and to be honest not not the most sensible thing I think from her to bring into the debate but a lot of people were saying to her look I'm not listening to you because you've got blonde hair I'm not listening to a rich white woman with blonde hair and blue eyes well you know if Jewish people have blonde hair and blue eyes that hasn't historically helped them from persecution there's been loads of Jewish people. There's not, there's not, you know, when you go to Israel as well, you realise that basically Jewish people are extremely ethnically diverse. They come from all over the world. Yeah. Ethiopian Jews, you know, Ashkenazi, German Jews, and then, or, you know, East European Jews, Sephardic Jews. So there isn't a, a, a single way or look to be Jewish and having blonde hair and blue eyes doesn't like exclude you from anti-Jewish practice. I think you're absolutely right and I think that there's two things there um, having blonde hair blue eyes that that kind of beauty have, the, her, the Aryan thing yeah, yeah. not even Aryan there's the, the, yeah. just her conforming to a universal European beauty standard yeah, yeah. Um, has yeah. probably doesn't protect her from anti-Jewishness absolutely not mm. it has benefited her career yeah. you know she would be a count let's not let's be real she would not be count down um, numbers person if she wasn't as attractive or conventionally attractive as she is yeah. um, my position on it is that I agree with you um, however I think in the same way that women can participate in patriarchy mm. people can participate in white supremacy even if they're not necessarily the beneficiaries of it and mm. that doesn't mean they do it constantly and that doesn't mean they do it as a um, like routinely in that in that moment that she made that image she was being a white woman because somebody who really understood where they stood sat side by side with African people would not have deleted that message. Yeah. But what, this is what happens yeah. when you participate with the oppressor. Oppressor, You switch off 
the part of your brain that acknowledges where you stand and you think, hold on a minute, wouldn't that be a good idea? Trust me, if Rachel Riley was really woke, she wouldn't have done that. So generally, she's a Jewish person fighting for Jewish people and fighting for progressive values and calling out racism when she sees it. In that moment, that's that, I mean, that was the whitest shit I saw yesterday. Every day I see some white shit and, you know, on Twitter, that was the whitest shit I'd seen. So that, and I think that's the line, I think that's not this, that's the interesting thing about Jewishness in, in in the sense that Jewish people are white at the same time. Unless we're talking about white supremacy and then they're not white anymore because they're not they don't fit that definition. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, it does. So it does. Um, you know, if Rachel Riley's walking down the street and there's a guy who's really into white women <laughs> she, mm. he's going to fancy her you know yeah. but uh, at the same time if she's walking down the street and then there's a guy who hates Jewish people he might walk past her because mm. she doesn't um, I mean she doesn't have the conventions you know that are stereotypically of a Jewish person maybe in her dress or in her facial appearance like you said mm. Jewish people are diverse so when people even say a Jewish people, a person looks X, Y or Z that's mm. almost like saying a mixed race person looks like X, Y and Z there's no mm. there's no central way anyone's supposed to look yeah. Um so this is conformed to a, st- a physical stereotype, um, and that has benefited her. Then, as I as I as I mentioned on Twitter, people were then going, "Well, you shouldn't erase apartheid messages because Israel supported apartheid." It's like, oh, for fuck's sake! That's like literally the ro- it, you couldn't be more anti-Semitic if you try. It's the definition. Yeah. What? Anytime you bring up Israel into any conversation about Jewishness, you're just fucking racist. Yeah, my favorite thing is like is like Jewish people in this country being held accountable for Israel. Many of them have never been there. Yeah, and and it's like it's in the same breath. People are like. What do you think about Israel? You know, sometimes to me or to, or to other people, they know, uh, you know, people are much more Jewish than I am. But but in the same next breath, they'll be like, the Tories have killed 100,000 people. It's like, okay, so, so Jewish people in this country are responsible for Israel, but you in your own country are not responsible for your own government. So yeah. it's a bit much then to make me responsible for a foreign government, you know, it's, as, as well. It's so it's so wild. And also, you know, on the, on the, particularly on the apartheid point, it's like the whole white Western world supported apartheid. Yeah. It's something people forget. It was allowed to exist quite happily um, for for decades because people were really supportive of the commercial benefits of oppressing the, the, the African majority in the, in the country. And it only ended after um, negotiations with the ANC that basically, where they basically promised to keep the economic status quo, which is why South, people forget this is why South Africa is very much in a very similar position economically to during the apartheid regime because things haven't changed. There's still a class system that oppresses um, a certain demographic of people uh, to enable things to be mined cheaply, for example, um, or to provide a service industry for the middle class and upper classes to keep them into the lifestyles they're accustomed to. Um, so that hypocrisy and that people become experts in things they know nothing about. Like, don't talk to me about apartheid, you know nothing about it. Don't talk yeah. about Israel, you know nothing about it. Yeah, well, anti- anti-Semitism is quite a complicated um set of issues as well it has certain aspects i think one of the things which i need to do is i feel i've been reading a lot about anti-semitism in the last few years i'm actually applying to do a phd about it so oh quite, interesting quite, quite interesting what's motivated that well i mean getting anti-semitic abuse personally which yeah. is is that know, online or no uh, in this in the street i've had people calling you know you jewish at me and things like that my friends making anti-semitic so generally wow. generally i have a sense and and is that well, a recent thing that it's increased? Over the say? last few years, I feel yeah. it has increased. Right. And um, I lived in Germany for a long time before that, which is sort of, um, you know, a kind of ironic thing. I did encounter anti-Semitic attitudes in, in Germany, but 
obviously it, it, it's a difficult relationship Germany Israel and the official kind of tone of it I don't think what's gone on in the left in um, in the UK would have been allowed to happen in Germany because I think the left in Germany is more aware that anti-semitism isn't just far right people anti-semitism I suppose like any form of racism can occur in any in any group in any part of society so I think um, what I think a lot of the answer I've kind of got about it is people sort of going, well, I'm on the left, so therefore I'm progressive. That means de facto I can't be racist because I'm on the left, but that's just a circular argument. Yeah. You actually have to live anti-racism. You can't just sort of like just say, you know, wear a T-shirt. Like Rachel Riley again, we can't just wear a T-shirt yeah. like I'm an anti-racist. No, it's a practice. It's something, you know, we've all, we've all been, like I went to a, comprehensive school in the 80s in the Midlands and it was a very racist environment yeah. and I've soaked up a lot of that racism subliminally and I can't just say like okay I'm on the left now and I'm just going to forget about all that I've got to think about it I've got to be aware of how these things things work and I think you know sort of becoming aware of how even in a progressive milieu kind of prejudice can work is is what I'm kind of interested in and yeah, I, I've just been reading about it, been thinking about it a lot and just been seeing it. And I suppose it's like any racism. When you start seeing it, you want to call it out all the time. Yeah. Uh, but that's exhausting. And because your own understanding of it gets very deep uh, and then other people's understanding of it is rightly, they don't necessarily have the time to spend a lot of time reading and thinking about anti-Semitism. If most of your family was killed because of it, it does seem kind of quite an urgent and real thing to, to be able to understand. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's just where, where I am, um, intellectually with it. Can we talk about immigration? Because yeah. That's a thing I'm very much passionate about the hostile environment and how damaging it is. Uh, yeah. I know that's something that impacted you. Massively. Yeah. Are you okay to talk about that? I am very happy to talk about it. Um, and um, would you like me to say yeah, about so, the, whatever what you went on? Well, yeah, but because, it. well, um, I uh, met my wife as a student. We were both studying interpreting. And that was a couple of years ago. That must have been in autumn 2016. And she was on a student visa. Uh, so it's very, very difficult for to transition now from a student visa to a work visa. Yeah. And with London Met, which was the uni which was involved in all the kind of visa scandals about giving people visas who weren't students, they're very, very strict with London Met students. So basically she had about a month after her studies were finished to find a job. It's not going to happen unless you're incredibly lucky. So we were together, I'm very happy, so wanted to get married. Um, you know, we would have got married at some point anyway, but probably brought it forward a little bit. And um, we got married and um, we applied to get a visa in October 2017. And they have something now called the minimum income requirement, which basically means that you have to satisfy that for the six months preceding the application to the visa, uh, you have been earning a certain amount of money. At the moment, it's 18.6 thousand a year, mm. which is above... Uh, what about 42% of the population are earning annually. And then um, the alternative is if you're self-employed, they look at the last couple of years. And I'm self-employed. I was a part-time student. So they looked at that. But my self-employment over the last couple of years was below that. It was not 18.6. So despite the fact that we had quite a bit of savings as well, um, 
you were not allowed to combine your savings with self-employment. Right. And so they rejected the visa. Um, and that meant that um, we had the option to appeal, which we did. We appealed it. But that meant that my wife had to stay in the country for the appeal and they confiscated a passport so right. she couldn't leave. And that took a year, basically. During that time, she was only allowed to work under the conditions of her student visa. And if she left the country, the whole process would be voided and we would have to we would have to start again. And we wouldn't get any of the fees back. I should say the fees to apply for the visa were already substantial. They were about like, with the NHS payment as well, it's all about 2,000 quid. And there's a lot more now. So we had a very tough year. Um, but we hung in there and we eventually got to the appeal tribunal and the judge found in our favour for uh, mainly for the reason of the savings, which the judge considered um, outside of the um, official way. Um, the, the judge kind of said that in future he thought our earnings would be more and it was a good judgment. I'm very happy, I'm very happy with that. I've, I've still got it. And then she was given um, she was given permission to stay on that. The way it works now is you get two and a half years, and then you have to go through the whole process again. Yeah. Uh, the, the the only positive the next time around is that both our incomes can be counted. So going through it and just seeing how basically it's once you get into that hostile environment and they take your passport, it's impossible to get somewhere to live. It's impossible to explain to an employer. Um, you know, they wouldn't let her work because I wasn't earning enough money. Um, so you know, they wouldn't let her work because you weren't earning enough money. I know, I mean, Can the absurdity. Uh, but I mean, I, can, I, I, I don't understand it really. But for, for example, she didn't have a national insurance number. She didn't have a passport, so she couldn't get a national insurance number. So she was being held up by the system, stopped from working uh, because... Um, you know, because she wasn't earning enough money. I mean, the, the whole thing is just... So once you're into that kind of absurdo world... Yeah. Um, I mean, other people have it much worse than us. We had a couple of mates who were lawyers, and we also went to see a really good immigration lawyer. But even then, like, the lawyers were all telling us totally different things. Like, yeah. one lawyer was telling us, you've got a good ch chance here. Um, and then another lawyer was saying, this is a hopeless case. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was tough. I mean, it was really tough. And people have been in this system for, you know, um, 10, 12 years with yeah. their passport confiscated, maybe, maybe waiting for an asylum appeal to be heard. And it's just, it's outrageous. I mean, it is just the suffering. And uh, there was a brief theme of sort of like, well, we feel quite sorry for Theresa May because she kind of works hard. But there's one politician who is the orchestrator of this more than any other is her. It's, I have no human sympathy for her because she has no human sympathy for other people. She has no sympathy for anybody and she and what her government... And I think the Labour Party are the architects of a lot of this too. I think the Tory party, I guess, maintained or amplified um, structures that... I mean, talk Labour Party home office ministers were all awful. You know what I mean? They were all hideous. They were blanket, awful map. You know I mean? They're all very right wing. Yeah, it could be right wing. They wanted. I remember when they wanted indefinite detention mm. of you know of people to, to detain people indefinitely. I mean, this is outrageous. So you know, this is very much a, a, a cross party thing. But I would suggest the Tories are just slightly more evil, um, just slightly. Um, but you're totally right. Theresa May is the architect of it, and it's all 
I have this theory, it's all purely um, racist. It doesn't seem to impact quote-unquote new world immigrants in the same way it impacts other immigrants. So people from Africa, the Caribbean, um, uh, Asia. Um, Brexit is the uh, exception, but we're actually fighting very hard to allow EU nationals to stay. In fact, it's amazing how people are defending their Polish cleaners. Um, you know, oh no, we can't, you know, Agnes, <laughs> we, you know, we can't live without Agnes. Like, it's, it's so cool that you care about EU uh, nationals. But where is this energy for the rest of the, the, the world population that considered itself to be British for, for many decades or considered themselves to be British for, for many decades? Um, so it's anti. I think it's basically anti-black and brown, quite clearly. Mm. I don't see any. I think I don't see any um, any any extreme. Um, I, I read some interesting things though, because like every country's got its own different relationships. So apparently, um, they're very keen to um, deport Latin American people. Right. They, 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 that's where it goes. But they often don't bother deporting Chinese people because the Chinese government just doesn't doesn't care and doesn't want them. And there's more economic pressure from China. Like if, if someone's a Chinese citizen's committed a crime in the UK, the Chinese government is more likely to say, you keep them, we don't want them. And because we rely on China for so many things. Exactly. It's the economic... But we uh, don't have those ties with, with South America. So yeah, like. so if you're Venezuelan or um, Bolivian, you've got worse cards in this scenario. I yeah. Think. I mean, it's so... I just think it's awful. And I think that if there's if there's one reason to vote for anybody other than the Conservative Party, it's, it's that... It's, I think, our sympathy for um, people who weren't born here, and even the children of people who who, mm. who, um, who weren't born here, because they were caught up in industry. Yeah, um, it's 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 outrageous, and I totally agree with you. If there's one reason to overlook things you don't like about Labour, for example, they have a much better policy now on this stuff. Um, so I'm hopeful that in the long term, the injustice of this stuff will just become too. I know that's. But I think if they start pulling EU citizens into this system as well, there's just going to be so many cases of people like me because they're going to implement this minimum income requirement for EU citizens as well. Um, I hope that the pressure will eventually go to, yeah. too great. But one thing I would say is when I was going through it all and, and talking to people about it, even my, most of my family is quite, quite right-wing Tories, to be honest. Really? Uh, That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'm the... I'm the um, um, I mean, Why my mum is my mum has completely changed because she doesn't like Brexit. But the rest of them are, um, you know, generally fairly conservative people. That's interesting. Is there um, is there is for that um, like is there um, like a kind of is it like your profession maybe? Yeah, I think it is. I think they've, they've all been in business um, to a greater or lesser extent. I think that that they were always well. I mean, also in the eighties, the Labour Party was had a fairly extreme phase as well, like the Michael Foot era, and following the 70s and the When you say extreme, do you mean... Well, I mean, the, the, the 83 Labour manifesto was to withdraw from the EU, um, withdraw from NATO, uh, unilateral abolition of nuclear deterrent. That, for my parents, that is not, that is not their politics. That sounds like the 2019 manifesto. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's... Um, <laughs> I think they're keeping the nu nukes, aren't they? They're, keep, they're not going to fire them, but they're going to keep they're them. Gonna, they're going to keep them, there, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, even though my parents and my family are a little bit more right-wing than me generally, they did not like the fact that I had to take the Home Office to court to get a visa for my wife. Okay. And they were not... I didn't meet anybody who said, 
we think these policies are good. I think yeah. people just don't know about them. No, people don't know. You don't know about them unless you go through them or you know someone who's going through them. And that's yeah. a real shame because it means the only people getting justice are the people who are getting in the newspapers. Yep. So just imagine how many people are living in this hell where they can't work. If you can't work, you can't pay your bills. If you can't pay your bills, you get made homeless. Yep. And you have to live with other people or you live on the streets. Um, I, st- I still can't get over the fact that government can't tell us how many people they deported wrongly. They can't tell us. Mm. I mean, this is, this is, could you imagine someone coming to your house and dragging you to a detention centre and then putting you on a plane and taking to a country that you haven't, you have no knowledge of and, mm. no, and you know nobody. And these countries, you know, these are generally not the kind of, these are white-run countries, there's no welfare state. You know what I mean? There's no benefits you can sign up to in Jamaica. There's no, there's no baseline level of living that you can, because they don't colonise the world. They don't have that financial infrastructure to do that stuff. Mm. Um, so you, you are destitute. You're left destitute. And this country's done that. This country is guilty of, these are crimes. This shit is criminal. Um, and, it's, and when you, I think a lot about structural inequality, and this is really a really good example of it. Like the structures are set up to allow these things to happen to certain people, mm. and they don't happen to other people. It could never happen to you. It could happen to your wife, mm. but you get that structure. We get with a British passport mm. um, and being born here, we are structurally protected yeah. from these things. Yeah, that, that's what my dad said. My dad reads the Daily Express and is pretty right wing on immigration and stuff. Mm. And he just kept he kept saying to me, sort of like. Um, I don't understand why there's all these people who, you know, who, who aren't sort of working harder, we're getting visas and they won't give you one. And I, I sort of like, you know, the system isn't going to make that kind of distinction, that, that, that laws aren't able to distinguish between the virtuous person and the, the, the law will just set a threshold yeah. and, 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 you know, that it's just going to, it's just going to cut you off. There's no mercy. It's interesting you say that though about virtuous. The law has decided some people are virtuous and some are not. But on financial criteria, virtuous equals money. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, And it's outrageous. talk about um, immigration and racism all day um, and I often do but let's not do that I I want to say one more thing it's very short Um, immigration lawyers get into my show free Really? Yeah, I, I, I had an audience made up largely of immigration lawyers. So if you're an immigration lawyer and you ever want to come and see me, okay. I mean, I'm not very expensive anyway, but uh, you, free, free seats for life for That's immigration That's I'm going to put all of James's contacts in the, in <laughs> yeah. the description of this podcast. So if you're an immigration lawyer, they get paid quite a lot of money. Sure. The pro bono ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, they need a la- but they also need a laugh. A lot of these people right. do need a laugh. Pro bono ones go for free. Yeah. Um, if you charge Two pounds for the high earners. <laughs> I know, I know. One of them, I know. I think it's five hundred and fifty an hour or something. Yeah, the, the best guys. There, there you go. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, there we anyway, well, I'll let you deal with um, deal with, with the lawyers. I'm just grateful for the audience. To me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to talk about um, what you do, which is really interesting. First of all, you are a fluent German speaker and a fluent French speaker. And a fluent French speaker. I am, yeah. I'm fascinated by um, polyglots because I've always wanted to speak a, a second language, and I've been learning French for so long. I just got yeah. a brain for it, but I get by. Um, Tell me about your language journey. When did you learn? What inspired you? Well, I was quite quite old, really. Um, Like, I moved to Germany when I was 21. uh, And I said, I'm not going to come back until I've learned German properly. Right. Um, That's quite a hard language. Yeah, but it is also quite... words for the. They they, they have more than seven. Really? How many do they have? Well, probably about... Well, because you've got four cases, so you've got four kinds of... uh, uh, And so you've got... um, 
Uh, you've probably got about 16 different types of dog. Although some of them are phonetically the same. Oh, okay. That's good. <laughs> but they like D as in feminine and D as in plural, they sound the same, but they are. They're spelled different. No, they're spelled the same as well. They're complete homophones. But, but you will know from context. So you, d- you were determined. So you went to Germany and you came back. And, as yeah, well, I was there for ages. I was there for nearly 10 years. Oh, okay. So that's yeah. the best, the immersive environment. Yeah, yeah. Best. My German is still much better than my French because I've never really lived in France. Right, and French uh, is all about the accent. Yeah, too. but I, I, I like uh, I read a lot in French. I watch I watch a lot of French movies. So yeah. Like, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in France, which what, I. What made you to learn French? Um, well, because basically in my profession in translation, you really need a, another to stand out to have enough work. Because yeah. if I just translate German, I've got enough. But if I've got French, then I'm I really always and have got enough. What do you translate? Do you do uh, oral translation? I do. Well, yeah, I'm my MA. I'm a qualified interpreter for French and German. Okay. Um, but uh, most of my written stuff is quite boring. Right. But I like it. I mean, I always enjoy it. Do you ever work with footballers? I do. Do you? Uh, I can tell you a very cool job, which I did. The last time Bayern Munich came to... uh, London to play Tottenham yeah. uh, they needed someone to do all the PA announcements in the stadium in German and I did them all did Willkommen you? beim Champions League Spiel yeah, you know. so, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah exactly exactly and uh, that is, I've done some good gigs but I've never had like 3,000 German fans going like, yeah. Can you do something for me? Can you do a German introduction to my podcast? Can you say welcome to Keeping Your Company? Please? Yeah, okay. Willkommen bei, um, sorry, I want to translate the um, uh, um, uh, Rumhängen mit, uh, mit Atina. <laughs> Rumhängen mit Atina. Hanging out with the thing. Give me a clean one. Well. No, it was clean. Um, okay, willkommen bei Rumhängen mit Atina. <laughs> Oder, um, yeah, Gesellschaft bei Atina. That was, that's a more accurate... Um, Brilliant! Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, so how do you get... Is it, I guess it's like agency work? Yeah, that was an agency, a sports agency. I used to translate for FIFA as well, so I've done quite a bit of soccer translation, soccer, but that was what they always called it. Are you a football fan? I am a big football fan. Okay, so I think one of the biggest things that will always hold English football back is our players don't know the rules. But it's, it's changing a bit, isn't it? It's changing Slowly, a bit. Yeah. But it's, they're still good in isolation and yeah. they go abroad and they don't get put in the And I think it's a real shame because when because all the best players are coming here, mm. the best English players are competing against like, they're like the best players in like North London and they're competing against the best players from like the whole of Western Europe. Whereas mm. you go to Bayern or you go to Italy mm. um, or you go to, you know, any, even like Holland, mm. so all of a sudden you could be the big fish in that small pond. Mm. Um, yeah, and, sure. And yeah, and I think it'd be better, at the moment the England team is just a bunch of players who hate each other mm. because they play against each other mm. every week um, and they're sleeping with each other's wives mm. and, like, absolutely, and I, I feel passionately about that. Um, could you teach a footballer to speak a second language? Uh, uh, well, yeah, sure. Because uh, they're not sure. notoriously... Uh. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there are exceptions. Steve, Steve McManaman, who went and played for Madrid, yeah, yeah, he was very, very good Spanish. He does Spanish TV, Maka. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't. I think it's because his accent sounds Spanish already. So when, when, when you listen, he, 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 he saw, he saw him on the go. Yeah, he's, 
there's bail speak Spanish. I think it's very bad. I, I, I get the impression it's tedious, yeah. and that's why they hate him. Yeah, him yeah. As, a, yeah. As, as, as with Beckham. But um, the the ironic one was Woodgate, who um, spoke brilliant Spanish, yeah. and was also voted the worst signing in Madrid's history, <laughs> <laughs> having scored an own yeah. goal on his debut and been sent off. I mean, that's that's the way to start. I feel like that Woodgate. I think they get a lot of English players in Madrid. Yeah. Owen went there. Yeah. Obviously, oh, Lineker went to Barcelona, actually, really. Well, the big um, guys, who's, what was the name of the chap? Um, God, he was killed in a car accident and he played for them in the, the 70s. Oh, the black dude. Black dude. Oh, they called him Black name? Black Flash. They loved him. They loved him. Cunning, um, Laurie Cunningham. Laurie Cunningham. Yes, yeah, Laurie um, Cunningham. Absolute, absolute legend. Pioneer. Of, of the game, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so Madrid seems to be this, like, one one continental club which loves signing English players and then falling out with them and hating them. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's um, it's the way of the world. It's the way of the world. Who do you support? I support Liverpool. You, why? Yeah. Oh, you're from the Midlands. Well, yeah, you know, there's not much going on there. Well, it was no, that or Forest. Yeah, well, oh, yeah, it would have been Forest. It would have been Forest okay. if I'd have been. Um, there is no real excuse. My dad is a Wrexham fan. Yeah. So that would close that, enough. Yeah, close enough. But that's that's. Um, I, I, but actually go and watch football I go and watch non-league stuff and, really? Well, league, yeah. I'm always fascinated by people because my dad was like that I'd come home and he'd be watching like some shit <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean where there's like there's no grass just yeah. mud and there's 10 people well, in the stands I'll, I'll hit you with it then my dad is the former chairman of Ilkeston Town Football Club which is a fairly significant non-league club he was not the chairman because he bought it he was the chairman because the real chairman um, was in trouble for fraud and made him the paper chairman so he was just on he was just on paper the chairman so the club wouldn't get and indicted for fraud is that where you got a love of non-league football I wouldn't say it was a love but non-league football is very funny so for comedians it's, it's a good environment and you watch you know. it live yeah I, I mean Orient are back in the league now but I used to go and see them I saw them in the FA is, was the FA Trophy or the Vars okay, the they final had, they had quite yeah. a nice little stadium but yeah Orient's a good Orient's yeah. a good club it's got a good atmosphere but yeah I, I like if, if I go the Premier League experience I mean obviously it's really expensive but yeah. I find it fairly underwhelming a lot of the time going to watch like Premier League football. I want to tell you something. Most football matches in, in England kind of boring. Yeah. You know I mean? Like I, I find myself drift. I I used to just I tend to just watch matches a day. Yeah. Just cut up the good bits. Yeah. Because a lot of the time it's just it's just players rolling around. Yeah. There's quite a lot of um. I don't know how to explain what's why it's boring. I just think I just think nothing's happening <laughs> most of the time. Um, and you only ever get a good game, maybe. Let's say, what are there, 13 Premiership matches in one in one weekend? Probably not one good game. Yeah. Well, the, the Liverpool-Man City game recently was really good. I've just written an article, actually, about why I'm, I've am i started to like football less, having been really passionate about it for a long time. And I think I think this is... Sorry to bring it back to, to politics, but I think... You know the phrase bread and circuses, like in the French Revolution, given bread and circuses, and yeah. that'll be fine. It feels to me when the country's in a... I personally think the country's in a pretty bad way at the moment and yeah. for a lot of different reasons. Um, when the when things really deteriorate like this, you you feel the bread and circuses aspect of football more. Like, oh, don't worry, just... Just go and watch just the game. Just go and watch the game and don't yeah. worry your head. And, and like, when you walk into the pub to watch the football and you see a load of homeless people, you're like... There's, there's something about... You enjoy distraction more, I think, when time's... Some people would say when times are bad, I would say, yeah, but it gets mixed with something yeah. else to sort of like... No, absolutely right. So the tradition of, of football um, 
as a sport and as a spectator sport, just country, mm. it's, it's a working class tradition. Yeah. Right? So you'd, you would, you know, you you go to you work in the factory all, all week, uh, slaving away, and then you then you pile into a football a football stadium with ter- in the terraces, yeah. and you shout yeah. <laughs> at, at twenty two men for ninety minutes to get it all out of your system, and then you go back to the factory on a Monday again. Yeah. Um, and that's that's just the same thing, but in a different form. That's happening now. I uh, am not a football. I used to support Man United, um, and I stopped being a kind of a supporter of Man United, and I stopped being incredibly passionate about club football. Um, basically, because I just looked at everybody and I just thought, "You're all mad." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you're all getting angry and emotional over people who, who, like my personal thing, and I guess I'm going to get political here, like. Black people are massively overrepresented in the football league, in the Premier League in particular, um, and these are this is an incredibly wealthy demographic of our of our sporting of our sporting culture. But you wouldn't that has literally had no impact in this country, right? Yeah. And I feel really disappointed in in the in these individuals because <laughs> I just sort of think, you know, whilst you're you know going out and doing having this incredibly lucrative career for not that much effort actually footballers are finished by 1pm most days mm. and yes they sometimes have to play three games in a, in a in a week and that's physically quite demanding but you know they also have a massive off season um, and they get that there's lots of pressure there's also lots of privilege and I just sort of think that we have all this all this success and all this wealth um, what is the benefit of this and yet we call these people heroes but they've done nothing heroic you know, so I, if you know, if my daughter decides that a footballer, wherever they come from, wherever they're at, is a hero, I'll be like, think about that very carefully because they've, they've, they're, these are working class people, or the mostly working class, it's not middle class mm. things, one footballer, who attained a certain financial and social and cultural status, and they've done fuck all with it other than get tattoos in their arms. Mm. And I find that shocking when you think about the climate we live in now. And, you know, when you think about Windrush, how does Windrush happen in a climate? where um, most of the people, well not most, but where a massive majority of the people who do something that a massive majority of this country care about say nothing. You know, it's weird, isn't it? They occupy a very privileged place in society um, and yet their kinfolk are being put on planes and taken someplace and there's no, there's nothing. I'd go, I'd go on strike. I wouldn't play for England. Why would I want to play for England? If they are doing this right now, imagine if every African or African descended footballer who ha- who was called up for England said, "Fuck you, people, and mm. sort out your government, mm. do it." And but so the lack of politicisation um, of just generally the kind of um, black cultural and athletic elites puzzles, baffles me, mm. and it makes me wish that I enjoyed PE. Like, I just think my brain in a six pack might change this world, right? If I had this brain, but I was a heptathlete winning gold medals, maybe things would be different. Or maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I'd just care about my I'm, I'm being reminded know. of when Barney Luxton in uh, year eight offered that w- he and I would become a fighting duo with the words, <laughs> with my brawn and your brain will make a powerful team. I told this to my friend Nayan at the time and he thought it was the funniest thing he's ever heard. The idea that us two would be any kind of threatening fighting unit was uh, was amusing to him. Let's get some final thoughts, man. So what are you doing for the rest of the day? Uh, I'm, I'm going to the doctors, actually, which is exciting. I've got to do a job application as well. I'm actually looking for a job at the moment, really? a proper full-time. A translation job? 
Yeah, I just applied for a job at a translator at the German embassy. Ah, so okay. uh, fingers so good, crossed good then. Luck. Um yeah. But um <laughs> but it doesn't mean anything, but I will take it. What's, what's good luck in German? Viel Glück. Oh, much luck. Yeah, much luck. Uh, yeah, viel Glück. I did see I did yeah. German GCSE. Yeah. I got a B. I did not do German GCSE <laughs> and I said when ich I mochte Hanschen und Pomfritz. You want you want chicken and fries, yeah? Yeah. That's why they pay me the interpreter. Wir mochten. Yeah, wir mochten. Yeah, I, auf jeden Fall. I conjugated the verb for once. Good. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, so I'll be doing that and then um, I'm going to be trying to be virtuous and do park run tomorrow. Oh, yeah, yeah. it's a Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. I've not, st- I've, I did 10 miles in October, yeah. um, which is awful because I've not trained. Um, I'm trying to get back into running now I've, I'm running out of excuses before it was like I had a baby but she's like 14 months now then it was like oh, I'm moving house but I've moved uh, and now I'm like uh, don't have much in the way of excuses to not exercise so I'm going to have to get back on it so you've just inspired me to find my local park run in my new area um, um, and I'm, I'm going to do that James it's been a pleasure it has been a pleasure um, thank you for the plantain yeah sorry I burnt it um, I, no, I, I like it burnt oh do you yeah okay I, like, I, I, I always like bacon a little bit crispy as do well. you I oh do. there you there yeah. you go um, James thanks for coming around really appreciate it it's um, been a it's been a total pleasure thanks for having me it's been a pleasure thank you So that was James Harris. Thank you again, James, for coming out to my new digs uh, to, to keep my company. It's appreciated. You've got to get involved with James. He's on Twitter. He tweets prolifically, perhaps more than I do. He's on uh, His Twitter handle is at James Harris Now. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you enjoy the podcast in general. If you do enjoy it, do what you normally do with podcasts. You enjoy, like, comment, share, chat to me. I'm on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook and all that stuff. Um, you know, tell your mates about it. You can subscribe. You can do all these really, really, really cool things. And that is wonderful for me. So it lets me know that it's worth doing. And I think it's worth doing because I really enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening. And we will catch up next time. <laughs>